0: So, I'd like to claim uh, Jesus' promise in um, Acts 1 that we shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and we will be his witnesses to the very ends of the earth as a result of that. Um, I want to read a poem from Malcolm Geith's Uh, that I think is appropriate, called The Naming of Jesus. This is based on Luke 2, verse 21. I name you now, from whom all names derive, who uttered forth the name of everything. And in that naming made the world alive, sprung from the breath and essence of your being. The very word that gave us words to speak, You drank in language with your mother's milk and learned through touch before you learned to talk. You wove our weekday world, and still one week within that world you took your saving name, a given name, the gift of that good angel, whose gospel breathes in good news for us all. We call your name that we might hear a call that carries from your cradle to our graves. Yeshua, living Jesus, Yahweh saves. So, uh, taking up here this morning uh, the red-headed stepchild of parents. We know about Mary, and we should give honor, proper honor, to Mary, the woman who bore God. She's very important to our world. You could say, in some ways, she's the second Eve. Uh, she did what the first Eve couldn't do. She obeyed the Lord. But we shouldn't forget the one that we don't know much about and hear about, and that is the stepfather. Not the blood father, but the stepfather of Jesus of Nazareth, Joseph. He is just, I think, as important as Mary. Think about it this way. Would God have given the, the job of fathering his divine son to just anyone? They would have had to at least had the character equal to the character in Mary. Right? Fathers are just as essential in raising children as mothers are. You just need to look at evidence, statistically, of what happens and the statistics of what happens to children when there isn't a father in the home. This is for another sermon and another conversation, but it's male and female from the very beginning that even raised the Son of God. That's a hard thing to say in our culture. The thing I say in our culture, that if I say it, I could get canceled. So be it. Male and female, he created them. So here we have this passage of uh, Joseph. He is betrothed to a woman of good character, Mary. And things seem to be going along fine, as they prepare to unite together as husband and wife. But then news arrives that Mary is pregnant, and this would have taken time, obviously, to be seen. And this causes Joseph some uh, consternation. Uh, And so we have this incident that happens here of what happens with Joseph when he finds out that news. From this passage, I want to basically talk about two main points about what this passage says to us about Joseph, but then what it also says to us about God. So what does this say to us about Joseph? Well, if you look at the passage you see the verses here where it says, um, and verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So, this is the first thing we find out about Joseph. Joseph, first of all, is, is stated to be a just man, a righteous man. And here this righteous man in his heart, decides that this is wrong, what has happened. Mary has obviously had sex with another man, and has become pregnant. That is wrong. I can't unite with a woman like that, so I have to separate. But he doesn't do it publicly. He doesn't do it extravagantly. He doesn't post it as a Facebook post. He doesn't put it on Twitter. He doesn't get it at the top of the news. He's decides to separate from her quietly, not wanting any more shame to come to her. Now, what an interesting thing. It says here that he's just, which essentially means he's righteous. It's translated as righteous in other parts of the, of the Bible. And we see that this righteousness is expressed through him saying, and being unwilling to put Mary to shame and resolve to divorce her quietly. Joseph was a good man, Even while being sinned against, in quotes, in this case, Mary appearing to have had intercourse with another man resulting in a a pregnancy, was a severe betrayal of Joseph and their commitment to become husband and wife. Yet still, Joseph decides not to act in a way to utterly destroy Mary, because Joseph was a good man. Notice in this action, Joseph had planned to take that there is neither an ignoring of a sin nor the excessive act of destruction because of, or of a sin. There is present both truth, Joseph not wanting to marry a loose woman, and also grace, not wanting to put shame publicly to Mary. This action that he decided to do struck me as very similar to Jesus' actions And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. Grace, neither do I condemn you. Grace, not wanting to put Mary to shame. Truth, go and sin no more. Truth, he resolved to divorce her quietly. See the truth and the grace in there? Even as a righteous man. Jesus was the best of men <coughs> in humanity. Joseph was a good man. But how can I say Joseph was a good man when we know from Scripture that no one is good but God? Thanks for asking that. I'm glad you did. Perhaps one of the things that made Joseph righteous in God's eyes was exactly because he asked that same question himself. No one's good but God. He knew that he was not as righteous as God, and he knew that God was going to fulfill all righteousness with the coming of the Messiah. This reminds me of the Apostle John's exhortation in in his first letter, chapter 1, 8, and 9. It says this If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. I don't get the sense from what little we know of Joseph that he thought that he was without sin. Maybe if he thought uh, this, he wouldn't have been as gracious to Mary in intending to divorce her quietly. We use the statement, nobody's perfect, quite a lot lot in our culture. But I wonder sometimes if we really believe that. Perhaps we should say something like, everybody else isn't perfect. Selfishness motivates that attitude. We need to learn from Joseph's intended action. Ask yourself how you have treated people who have sinned against you or hurt you, even intentionally intentionally. Is your first response similar to Joseph's? Not wanting them to experience excessive shame or public disgrace. We're all about exposing certain public disgraces of people. It's why we use our video cameras on our phones. Those cameras act like challenges to people's actions. Go ahead, I dare you. I suspect if we did a survey of people that they would wish to be treated more like the way Joseph intended to treat Mary... Quietly and without public ridicule, rather than to be treated perhaps like Chris Cuomo or Juicy Smollett, or even dare I say it, Kyle Rittenhouse. Love your neighbor as yourself. Joseph intended to treat Mary exactly that way because he knew if he was in a similar position, that is the way he would hope to have been treated. Can we do any less? Thank God for the gospel. Joseph was a good man. Joseph was a just and righteous man. But this passage, but from this passage, we see that he was even more. In verse 20 and 21, it says, but as as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. In verses 20 and 24, it says, When Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. He, Joseph did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. Not only is Joseph a just man, a righteous man, a good man, but he's also an obedient and faithful one to God. So he's not just just and righteous. He's also obedient, obedient and faithful. R.T. France in his commentary on this passage states that when the grammatical tone of this moment where Joseph is considering his decision, it seems to show that when Joseph made up his mind to separate from Mary there was no doubt in his mind he was doing the right thing. He was going to break off the relationship with Mary. A powerful intervention would seem to be needed to change Joseph's mind, and there can be no better one than a visit from God's messenger in a dream. Joseph goes to bed with every intention to end it with Mary and wakes up the next day with exactly the opposite intention. I don't think this was a response of fear. I don't think Joseph was afraid of God and That God was going to strike him down if he didn't, but it was one of clarity of what was really going on. And what was the clarity? First, Mary's conception was of divine origin. The angel told basically Joseph, it's not a normal pregnancy, not even a miraculous normal pregnancy. What I mean by that is shown in the Gospel of Luke, the first chapter, which the blessings read. That chapter describes how John the Baptist, the prophet who heralded Jesus' arrival, was conceived. His conception, John the Baptist, was a miracle of natural avenues. It was a miracle because both John the Baptist's mother and father were like Abraham and Sarah beyond childbearing years. But God used a human egg and human sperm to conceive John. That's miraculous with mary there was no male sperm evident i'm not one who thinks that god did what god did was have some sort of or some form of sexual relations with mary and then jesus was conceived i don't think that but this was an absolute unique conception a human egg from a female united with the will of god and jesus is conceived is it so far fetched to believe that if god can create something out of nothing, can make human beings from the dust of the earth, that by an act of his will he can cause the spark of life to fire in a human female reproductive egg without a male sperm. Is that so far-fetched? Colossians 1, 16 and 17 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If things from as grand as planets and solar systems to as minuscule as the atoms that make up our bodies are held together by God, then why is it a far step to the conception of a human being without male sperm? So this was part of the clarification that God brought to Joseph in the dream. Joseph, this thing that has happened has never happened before and will never happen again. It is unique, a miracle of miracles. Second point of clarity that the message brought, the angel, was when God told Joseph he will take this son born to Mary and he he will take him as his own for that has historical and majestic significance you got to be clear on this conception, Joseph, but you also have to take him as your son. The angel called Joseph son of David. Who was this David the angel was talking about? 1 Samuel, 16, 1, 1 Samuel uh, chapter 16, verses 1 and 13 says this, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul, since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. David was the first great king of Israel. He was the one described as a man after God's own heart. It is fitting that Joseph would be a descendant described as he is in this passage. But what is even more significant is the result of Joseph choosing to take Jesus as his adopted son. When the angel addresses Joseph as son of David, this messenger from God is acknowledging the significance of Joseph's forebears, his forefathers. He is saying, Joseph, you are a descendant of King David, and therefore you have a claim to the very throne of Israel. Why is this significant? It is significant in this case because of the act of adoption. Joseph was not uh, his first son's physical father. So God was saying to Joseph, you will take Mary as your wife and you will adopt this child, this son. As I was contemplating this point, this concept of adoption, it made me think of the times in the New Testament when this idea was used to describe, describe us and our relationship with God. And the word adoption... Uh, that is used in the New Testament. It's used five times by the Apostle Paul: three times in Romans, and one each in Galatians and Ephesians. I'll read one to give you an idea how it is used. Romans eight fifteen says this: For you uh, did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. <laughs> The word used here in another four, and in the other four instances is the Greek word weothesia. Say that, weothesia. Weothesia. There are two words that make up this one word, adoption. One of those words means a son. The other word means to place or lay or set. So essentially in the Greek, the word euothesia or adoption means to place a son or daughter. So when God said to Joseph, you will take Mary as your wife and you will have a son and name him Jesus, what God was putting into place is the official placing of Joseph's son as an heir to the throne of David. This became official when after Jesus was born, Joseph had him named Jesus. And the naming by Joseph was the official act of adoption. Jesus was placed as a son of David, just like his earthly father. How cool is that? Have you thought about this idea of adoption as it relates to your relationship with God? Brothers and sisters, you have, you have been placed into the family of God. You have been weosotheseed. You are sons and daughters of the king and kings. And he has also called you brother. We are his family. And it won't end there. Revelation 5.10 says, And the Lamb has made them a kingdom of priest, a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Not only are we sons and daughters and brothers and sisters, but we are also heirs with him. So the obedience and faithfulness of Joseph was significant in that it set Jesus in the line of David as an heir. Joseph was not only a righteous man, but he was also an obedient and faithful one. This passage shows us Joseph's righteousness and also his obedience. So it shows us Joseph was a good or righteous man, and it shows us that he was an obedient one. But what does this passage tell us about God? Verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This passage shows us that God is salvation. That is literally what the name of Jesus means, as, as Fred said earlier. God saves. That's what Jesus means. So what is Jesus saving us from? Well, as it says here, our sins. But that word can seem ubiquitous and confusing to us because it is an old and religious word. So what might be a better way of communicating this word? I think a helpful way to look at it might be to use the word consequences. It's not an exact one-to-one, but it's important. Jesus is saving us. From the consequences of sin. And what are those consequences? Romans 6.23 says it clearly. The wages of sin is death. In other words, the payment of what is, or what is earned in sin is death. Death is what entered the world at the start of Adam and Eve's transgression. Which I'll talk about soon. But what... But what death is in this case is not necessarily a ceasing to exist in physical life, nor is it an end. What it means here is separation. Death means to separate. So when we died along with Adam and Eve, we were separated in many ways. The main ones being separated from God, each other, and ourselves. (coughs) Excuse me. So what sin does is separate. The wage or payment of sin is separation, is death. When we die physically in this world, we are separated from our physical bodies. Our, our souls and spirits are separated. That's what death means. This is why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 5.13, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Sin or separation came through a man, Adam. Paul continues... In Romans five, seventeen and 19. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free, free, free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. For as by the one, man, one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Do you see this? Through one man, sin and separation entered and reigned. And through one man, it was dealt with via Jesus, the Christ. Let me see if I can summarize this for you succinctly. Look at Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Open that up if you have it. I'll put it on your, your iPhones. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, which says this. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is a gift of God not a result not a result of works so that no one may boast. Did you know that the entire uh, the real heart of the gospel is pretty much summarized in this one verse? <clears throat> Let me help you with that. Let me define some of the words here. For by grace, what is grace? Well, grace technically is an undeserved gift. It is getting something that you don't deserve. So if you deserve one thing and you get exactly the opposite, that's like grace. So if you deserve death and you don't get it, that's grace. You've been saved. Another way of saying saved is rescued. You've been rescued. As it says, he will save his people from their sins. What in this case have we been rescued from? Well, the wage of sin, right? Death. We've been saved or rescued from death. Through faith. What is faith? Faith is trust. You need an object to trust or have faith in in order for faith to be faith. And trust in what? Well, we we trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So we could read this summary of the gospel in this way. For by an undeserved gift, we have been rescued from death through trusting in Jesus's life death and resurrection. Did you catch that? For by grace you have been saved through faith. For by an undeserved gift you have been rescued from the from death, separation through trust in Jesus's life, death and resurrection. And this, not of your own doing; it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. If you ever find yourself unable to summarize the gospel for some, with somebody, and they say, "Well, what is the gospel?" Go to Ephesians two eight, define those three words: grace, saved, and faith, and tell them. That's the heart of the gospel. So this passage shows us that God is our salvation. What else does it show us about God? Well, I want to go back to a part where I was talking about Adam and Eve and as Paul summarized sin entering the world through them. This has something to do, uh, I'm kind of referencing here verses 22 and 23 uh, in the passage for this morning. Now remember, in the first Advent Sunday, Fred preached on this passage of Genesis 3 if you want to turn there you can because this needs to be revisited in chapter 3 verse 15 it says I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel as Fred preached this was the very first reference to God being with us the seed of the woman would receive a bruise on the heel as he the seed a particular seed was crushing the head of the enemy Incidentally, back in college, a friend of mine told me about um, the very next verses in chapter four, verse one, where Adam and Eve have Cain. And Eve's expression after Cain is birthed is, I have, um," let me see, let me go back to that. Actually, I want to get this right. In chapter four, verse one, Adam After Eve after Cain is born she says I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord well my uh, Bible study leader at the time said some have translated this passage that verse a little slightly differently doesn't destroy the meaning of what has been translated there it just is an interesting way of looking at it but some have thought that what Eve really said is I have gotten a man comma The Lord. She was there when God said, a seed of you is going to destroy the serpent's head. The very next chapter, Eve is saying, I have gotten a man. And we put in there, with the help of the Lord, which necessarily isn't a bad translation, but it could be, I've gotten a man. It's the Lord. This is the seed, right? This is the one. It's going to crush the head. Interesting thought, isn't it? Anyway, back to the passage. Now these verse, words from God in verse uh, chapter Genesis chapter 3 verse 15 were the very first pronouncements of the consequences of the first sin. And this happened thousands of years before this moment when the angel visited Joseph and said he will save his people from their sin. And the verse that Matthew references here uh, about the virgin is from Isaiah 7. And that happened hundreds of years before this dream visitation of Joseph. So from the very beginning... God pronounces right after sin that there will be a particular seed that will crush the enemy's head. Uh, We're reminded again through Matthew here in Isaiah 7, which is hundreds of years after that, and hundreds of years before Joseph has this dream, that this is stated again. There will be somebody who will come, of this case, of a virgin. God promises from the very beginning this will be taken care of by a particular someone. He states this thousands and hundreds of years before actually bringing it to pass. Does that not show God's faithfulness? Does it not tell us his word is trustworthy? This passage shows us God is our salvation, and it shows us how faithful he is, that his faithfulness is long. What can we conclude and hope to apply about this passage? Well, from Joseph and his righteousness, we can learn that our righteousness is not dependent upon us. Though we benefit from following a good path, and that's what we should do. Joseph followed the law. He followed it in this instance. He was going to divorce Mary. We should do that. Not because it makes us righteous. We should do that because we are righteous, declared by God. Should we exercise right living? Absolutely. We are now God's family, and his family lives to honor him. But we also know that our family is completely dependent on, on dad, on his grace. From Joseph's obedience, we have a great example of God not wanting sacrifice, but obedience. He wants his children to walk in his light. This is why we have each other in this pilgrim group path, but more importantly, his spirit to lead us on this path. But that's another sermon. We learn from God and his salvation and his faithfulness that we see clearly the life and work of Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus means God is our salvation, and he talked about that very person at the start of the darkness in Genesis 3. Should this not lend us encouragement in walking close with him? If he was committed to it so long ago, does that mean he's any less committed to that today? Should this not give us confidence to live another minute, another day for him? He doesn't leave us as orphans. We are his adopted, we are the sea children. We are his placed sons and daughters. amen to that. Before I close in prayer, I want to read the final poem from Malcolm Geith. This book called The Singing Bowl. This is called Descent. They sought to soar into the skies. There's classic gods of high renown for lofty pride aspires to rise, but you came down. You dropped down from the mountain's sheer, forsook the eagle for the dove. The other gods demanded fear, but you gave love. Where chiseled marble seemed to freeze their abstract and perfected form, compassion brought you to your knees. Your blood was warm. They called for blood and sacrifice. Their victims on an altar bled. When no one else could pay the price, you died instead. They towered above our mortal plane, dismissed this restless flesh with scorn, aloof from birth and death and pain, but you were born. Born to these burdens, born by all, born with us, all astride the grave, weak to be with us when we fall, and strong to save. Let me pray. Jesus, thank you so much for... Your earthly father, the one you adopted, who adopted you, Joseph. Thank you for the example he gives us. That he is not to be forgotten. That he was the father that raised you. He was the one chosen by your heavenly father to raise you. And for good reason. Thank you that he was a just man and the obedient one. May we also exercise those characteristics. Thank you that this shows, this passage shows your salvation, (coughs) your Jesus, Yahweh saves, and that your long faithfulness, that faithfulness that goes from the very moment after the very first sin that caused all this turmoil. You've been faithful since then, and you will be faithful to the very day when the one on the white horse comes down from heaven and makes everything wrong right again, makes everything crooked, straight, and every low place, high again. We love you. Thank you for this. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.